Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Victory Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. I pray that God uses this message to help you worship God, strengthen your relationship, and glorify Him. Without further ado, here is this week's message. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, Welcome. Uh, Thank you for joining us here for our sermon at uh, Victory Baptist Church. Let me try to get my angle right on the camera here. Sorry for shaking y'all around so much. Um, If you would go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, We're continuing our sermon where we take a look, a a kind of a deep dive into the book of Hebrews. Um, When I first started this series, um, I said that the books of Hebrews and Matthew are two of my favorite books in the Bible because these two books highlight the the cohesiveness and the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, the authors kind of, they set out for that purpose. Let's see, when Matthew wrote the gospel, um, he was uh, writing it to Jewish non-Christians to show them just how Jesus fulfilled all those Old Testament messianic prophecies and to try to convince them to become a Christian. Um, Then the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians. So these are Jews who do believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, But uh, this, uh, the author of Hebrews was writing to show that um, Jesus and worshiping Jesus and this relationship with Jesus is more, it's it's greater than any religious system that was set up, um, especially that one of the Old Testament. And so when you're reading through these two books, Um, What you'll notice is that there's a lot of Old Testament scripture references. Um, And so in this series, for us to more fully understand what the author's trying to say, we're going to bring those Old Testament scriptures into light so that we can illuminate the New Testament passage and help us to understand them better. But as I said, this book, the author of this book, is trying to show that uh, Jesus is greater than any um, religious system that was set up in the Old Testament. And so this series is called Jesus is Greater. So let me give you a little review real quick. For the past few weeks, um, the author has been building on this theme that Jesus is greater than the angels. Uh, So just to recap a few points, Jesus is greater than the angels because he is God and the angels serve him. Um, Jesus' message, that is the gospel, is greater than the angels' message, which was the Abrahamic covenant, um, uh, sorry, the Mosaic covenant, uh, because it was brought by Jesus, it was bought by his life, and it was proven with signs and wonders and signed by the Holy Spirit. And then last week, uh, we took a a peek into the end times um, in the world to come. That is the new creation. And that is where everything will be under Jesus' direct rule and authority and not mediated by angels. Now, that point actually ties in with one of our questions for our upcoming Wednesday night uh, Q&A session. If you want to join us for that, uh, please be on the lookout for our Zoom link. But also last week, uh, the author focused a little bit on Psalm 8, which I paraphrased kind of like this. Um, So the author is saying, uh, God... All this, this creation is amazing, and God, you are amazing. And you've made me pretty wonderful too, but I'm not nearly as amazing as you are. So are you sure you want to leave all this beautiful creation under my control? But you're God, and you're wiser than I am, so I trust you, and I trust that decision. Um, but then the author kind of took that psalm and uh, refocused it on Jesus as um, saying that Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment or the, the ultimate representation of humanity. So this week... The author kind of takes a pause in highlighting or contrasting the, the difference between Jesus and the angels, and he, um, he wants to highlight what Jesus' sacrifice does for us. And so if you go ahead, uh, and we're, sorry, we're going to be in Hebrews 2, verse 10, um, and I'm titling this Jesus, Our Redeemer. Now let me tell you a little funny story before we get into this. Um, before I started the sermon prep for this, I was telling um, Hannah that every week when I start my sermon prep, I have this idea of how much text I want to get through. Um, and 
it seems like the bigger the chunk of text that I want to get through, the, the more God just kind of laughs at me and says, nope, you're not doing all that. Um, so this week I kind of went into that, into this with that mentality that, you know, God, I know that you, I'm, I'm probably thinking we're doing way too much, so I'll go ahead and pare it down. And, um, and it seems like the more I argue with God, the more he, he pares it down. I must have done a lot of arguing with God this week because we're only getting into one verse. Um, but that one verse is really important. And on the first read, it's a little bit confusing. So I think it's good that we're going to spend a little bit of time with this. Um, but this is Hebrews 2.10. Um, the title is Jesus, Our Redeemer. But the main idea of this verse is that Jesus' sacrifice offers reconciliation. And I have this one verse broken down into five parts. It's God the creator, Jesus the pioneer, Jesus made perfect, notice the question mark there, um, then brought to glory, and is that appropriate? Again, another question. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we'll get into this text. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the truth and the wisdom that is in your word. I thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through your word and through your son, Jesus. As we dig into this, this one verse this morning, God, I pray that you will um, show your truth to us, that you will help us to grow closer to you and understand you more so that we can be more obedient to you and reflect your glory to those around us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, so I'll go ahead and uh, I'll go ahead and read Verse 10 it says, For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So this, like one of the verses last week, it's a pretty confusing sentence. So what we're going to do is we're going to take it apart um, and try to figure out what the author is talking about. And again, like last week, I'm going to look at the different pieces kind of out of order and then we'll put it back together. Um, and we're going to start with the easiest one, right? And that's God for whom and through whom all things exist. This one's pretty simple because it comes straight out of a biblical worldview. Um, well, real quick, uh, I meant to say this in the intro. Uh, in this one verse, we don't get a lot of Old Testament quotes like we have in, in the weeks past. There are actually, from what I could tell, there are no direct quotes of the Old Testament in this verse. However, the author's coming at it from a, a uh, Jewish worldview, and the audience is coming to this letter with a Jewish worldview. And so they would have this understanding of the Old Testament. And it's to the point where the author doesn't have to give direct quotes to bring up these ideas or to have the audience uh, kind of conjure up these ideas in their mind because they're operating from the same worldview. And this is one of those points where uh, this, is, this is kind of one of those, the, these times where the author doesn't have to quote anything specifically from the Old Testament, but because they're operating from the same worldview, he can just make a, make a little allusion to something in the Old Testament, and they're all going to have the same idea. And so when the author says, for whom all things exist, what he's saying is this, this whole idea that we see in the Old Testament that all of creation was created for the purpose of glorifying God. That's so when he says, for whom all things exist. That means everything that God created was created to glorify God. Just take a look at the introduction to one of my favorite psalms. This is Psalm 19. And so our first few verses, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. So what the psalmist here is saying that all of this beautiful creation that God has, has created it sings the glory. It sings his glory back to him. It sings God's praises back to him. They don't even have to give, they don't even have to use words or songs, but just because it is so beautiful, all of this creation that God has given us is so beautiful, it gives the glory back to God. Um, but on even a more basic level, 
if we look uh, at this uh, Hebrews uh, passage, he says, uh, through whom all things exist. Right? Again, this, this is going back to that Old Testament idea that everything in the world was created by God and through God. God created the whole universe and everything in it, and it was created through the power of his word. Now, there are many Old Testament texts that speak to this, but most obviously would be Genesis 1.1, right? Where uh, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But also passages like Psalm 104, uh, verses 24 and 25. It says, how countless are your works, Lord. In wisdom, you have made them all. The, wor- the earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, vast and wide, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. See, the author in Hebrews is highlighting these aspects of creation to show God's authority over it. It is under God's authority because he created it for that purpose. And now the next part of this verse is pretty easy too, right? The pioneer of their salvation. Now, whether or not you believe on Jesus for salvation, it it doesn't matter because it's easy to recognize that the author is talking about Jesus well, I don't want to say it doesn't matter whether or not you believe, but this point here, that, that doesn't really matter. Because whether or not you believe it, the author obviously believes it. The author believes that uh, Jesus is the source of salvation. But why would he use this word pioneer? And that seems like a little bit of an odd choice of words. So to understand what the author is trying to say here, I, I took a look at the Greek word. And this Greek word is archegon, um, which is, it, it occurs in this exact same form three other times in the New Testament. Uh, once in uh, Hebrews 12, 2, right, and that calls Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So there, that pioneer, um, it, that word is translated the exact same. Um, and then in Acts 3, 15, um, it refers to Jesus as the source of life. And then in Acts 5, 31, that calls Jesus the ruler and savior. So here, even though that is the exact same Greek word, um, it's translated into two different English words well, because of their context. Now, if any of you know uh, anything about the Greek language, you know that words can be conjugated differently. They, um, they take on different forms depending on you know, what the subject is or what the object is or whether it's masculine or feminine or, or what's going on. And so even though this word only happens four times in this exact way in the New Testament, that doesn't mean that's all this word happens. Or that doesn't mean that those are the only four times this word comes up in the New Testament. It actually shows up 199 other times, not just these four, but 199 other times in the New Testament. And each one, each time this word is used, it's referring to some sort of authority based on pioneering or authorship or originality. Right, so, for example, let me give you an, an example to try to understand this concept of archegon. Right? Um, if you were going to go climb Mount Everest, you would, wanna, you would call somebody or, or get in touch with somebody who's already done that and follow their lead. Because you're going to refer to their authority because they already know what they're doing and, and they've done it already. So they will be your pioneer to see you through that. Um, in another way, let me give you another example. So Amazon is back in the news this week uh, because Jeff Bezos, who is the founder of Amazon, and this Jeff Bezos, he, he led it from an online book re- retailer run out of his garage to a multinational, multifaceted $1.7 billion, sorry, $1.7 trillion company, right? But he has stepped down as the CEO. So Amazon has to figure out what that means and how they're going to operate because Jeff Bezos is no longer, well, I mean, he is the archegon of Amazon. He, he has that authority over it because he created it, he built it, he led it into what it is now. But now he's stepping down as their CEO. So that's sort of what the author here is saying about Jesus, except 
Well, Jesus will never step down as the archegon of our salvation. This idea of Jesus as pioneer, it also serves to compare him with Moses. Moses led the Israelites. He pioneered a trail with the Israelites through the wilderness from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt, all the way over to the promised land. But it also contrasts Jesus with Moses because Moses was disobedient. And therefore, he was not allowed to enter into the promised land. But Jesus is perfect and sinless and righteous. And therefore, he is already in the promised land. He is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. But if Jesus is the archegon of our salvation, if he is the the pioneer of our salvation, how could God make him perfect through our suffering? Also, doesn't this kind of fly in the face of the argument that the author has already been making, that Jesus is greater than the Old Testament prophets because he's God, and Jesus is greater than the, the angels because he's God? And so if Jesus is God... Isn't he already perfect? And if he's already perfect, how can he then be made perfect? That almost doesn't make sense. So again, it's helpful for us to look into the Greek word here. Um, And the Greek word, this Greek word is a derivative of the verb teleao, uh, which means to complete or accomplish a task. So what the author is saying is that Jesus's task of making a way of salvation for us was completed through his suffering and death on the cross. Jesus' pioneering a way for our salvation was completed through his suffering on the cross. Jesus' suffering is the payment for your salvation. We traded our righteousness for sin, but he has perfected our righteousness with his life. We are enslaved to our sin, but Jesus has perfected our freedom with his blood. And it was by this pioneering of our salvation that he brought many sons and daughters to glory. So it seems like the author here is purposely, he's purposely chosen this language to allude to God bringing the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land. So this is kind of, again, uh, harking back to that Moses um, imagery here. Um, the books of Exodus and Numbers share the story about how God brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and into, or to the land that was promised, by their ancestors, or promised to their ancestors. And throughout that story, God shows his glory But it is contrasted with the sinfulness of the Israelites. It's God's faithfulness versus their their selfishness. Not selfish. Um, God's faithfulness versus their selfishness. The Israelites are portrayed as God's chosen people. But throughout the Old Testament, they rejected God's covenant with them. So in this Hebrews passage, these sons and daughters are those who have accepted Jesus as their Savior. I want to be very clear right now. We are sinful, just like the Israelites, and we have rejected God's plan for our lives, just like the Israelites. We have rejected God's call to holiness. We've rejected our relationship with him that we were created to have, just like the Israelites. And because of our sin, we deserve eternal death and punishment in hell. And there is nothing that we can do to reconcile our relationship with God. But God loves us so much that he didn't want to leave us there. God loves us enough to send his son to die the death that we deserve, thus buying our freedom and reconciliation. Jesus is the only way to salvation. There is salvation in no other name and by no other means. All you have to do is place your faith in him as Savior and Lord. Then we are adopted back into God's family as his children. That's what he's talking about. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. This is what it means. That's what he's talking about. We don't deserve it, right? But Jesus offers it for us. We can't earn it, but Jesus bought it for us. But this idea of glory goes deeper than that. 
You see, glory is something that belongs only to God because only God is, is holy. See, God's glory is his presence and his splendor. In the Old Testament, God's glory is deadly. To enter into God's glory was to be in his presence. And since God is holy and we are sinful, his glory completely demolishes sin. And even Moses could not enter into God's glory. So look with me at Exodus 40, verses 30, uh, sorry, 34 and 35. It says, wait, wait, there we go. There we go. All right. Um, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But now, through being made righteous in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Christians now live in that glory of God. Our relationship with God has been restored. Our sinfulness has been covered by Jesus, and therefore we can once again enter into God's presence. Our, re our relationship with God has been reconciled. Now there's one more part of this verse and that we need to look at to kind of tie it all together. And that's where the author says it was entirely appropriate. And I actually think that it's this little phrase that is the linchpin that holds this whole verse together. It's also one of the hardest parts to understand. right? Uh, it, in reconciling the relationship between God and man, the author is saying that it was entirely appropriate that God would make Jesus suffer for our salvation. So how is it appropriate for Jesus to suffer and die for my wrongdoing? Or how is it appropriate for any father to send his son to die for the people that rejected him? That doesn't seem appropriate at all. But it is appropriate, it is appropriate because only God could do it. Only Jesus could pay that penalty. Only Jesus could earn our salvation, and only Jesus could be resurrected and reign in heaven. It was appropriate because of who Jesus is. He's not just any son, or he's not just any human. He is God revealed in the flesh. Therefore, it was entirely appropriate that God would take this punishment upon himself to reconcile his relationship with his creation and offer forgiveness through his own suffering. Think of it like this. Anytime there is forgiveness there is still some sort of payment or punishment. Okay, if you, if you loaned me $20 with the understanding that I pay it back, then later I told you that I could not pay it back. Well, you'd be left with two choices, right? Option number one, you could hold me to my word and hope that at some point in the future I'd be able to pay back that $20. Or you could forgive me of the $20, in which case you would be forfeiting that money. Essentially, you'd be paying $20 for my forgiveness it would be entirely appropriate for you to make that decision. Sorry, it would only be appropriate for you to make that decision because it would not be appropriate for anybody else to come along and say that you need to forgive me of the money that I owe you because it's my debt to you. So you are the only appropriate person to forgive that debt. Now, our salvation is the same story, just on a much larger scale, right? We sinned against God and we owe him our life, but he chose to forgive us in the only appropriate way, by paying for it himself. We could choose to deny that forgiveness. And just like in that example, I could choose to deny the $20 loan or the forgiveness of the $20 loan and try to repay it. But again, this difference is huge. If we choose to deny God's forgiveness, it's not just a mere $20 that we're being held to. It is our life and our eternal destination. Therefore, it was entirely appropriate for God to buy our access to his glory through Jesus' life. 
Our only appropriate response is accepting that forgiveness and having our relationship with God restored and living as his children. Or as this verse says, For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. So our application point, what type of application do we get from this passage? Well, our application always comes from our definition of a disciple that we get from Matthew 4.19. And in that, we see three indicators of a disciple, and that's knowing, being, and doing. And we always tie our application to those three indicators. So our first application is to know that Jesus offers reconciliation. Right? We must understand that our relationship with God is broken because of our sin. See, we were created to be in relationship with God. We were created to glorify God, but that relationship is broken because of our sin. In choosing sin, we reject God. But Jesus' suffering is the only appropriate way that our relationship with God could be reconciled. He suffered and died to pay the penalty for your sin, to pay for your forgiveness. But knowledge of that is not enough because knowledge doesn't save. Being Knowing that there's an offer of forgiveness isn't, isn't enough. You have to actually accept that offer of forgiveness. So that brings us to our second application point. That is to be reconciled to God. See, Jesus has already paid your admission fee. You just need to accept it. Ignoring or rejecting this offer of forgiveness is the worst mistake you could ever make because it will cost you your eternity. Through Jesus' payment, we can enter into God's glory and into right relationship with him. But we must accept him as our Savior and Lord. And our due application, that's to live as God's children. We have been bought out of slavery to sin. So now our lives should not be marked with the sin or with sin as if we were still under its control. Jesus has freed us from that life. We are now sons and daughters of God, and we live that way by reflecting his glory to those around us. Kind of like Moses when he would come down off the mountain after spending time with God, just being close to God's presence was enough to make Moses' face shine so brightly that the people around him couldn't even look at him. Similarly, when we are living as God's children, God's glory reflects off of us and other people can see God through us. So those around us should be able to clearly see God's glory shining in our lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you again for your word. I thank you for the truth that is in your word. And I thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to, t- to pay the punishment for my sin so that my relationship with you could be reconciled. God, I pray that anybody listening to this message who does not know you will come to know you. God, I pray that you will work on their heart so that they can accept this truth and place their faith in you. God, I pray that those of us who are listening to this message who have already uh, accepted that salvation, that we will do everything we can to live as your children, that we will surrender uh, our lives over to you so that we can reflect your glory to those around us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more information about our church, please visit VictoryBaptistHopeMills.com or Facebook.com slash VBCHopeMills. I would also like to ask that you rate and review this podcast. And if you found this sermon helpful, please share it.